This is On and Off Your Mat Podcast, episode 210, Your Nervous System Through the Lens of Yoga. If you have a basic understanding of your nervous system and a basic understanding of yoga, its philosophy and its practice, those two knowledges might be organized in very different boxes in your brain. So today I'm inviting you to merge them together and take your Westerner scientific knowledge of the nervous system and correlate it to your knowledge of Eastern philosophy, yoga, Ayurveda, even Hinduism. If you're totally new to the nervous system, you might want to start with some of our episodes, either 117, Understanding Your Stress, 121, Nervous System 101, 128, Tools to Regulate Your Nervous System, or even 142, Your Emotions and Your Nervous System. If you've already listened to some or all of those, you know that basically your nervous system perceives the environment you're in and coordinates your behavior accordingly. You also know about the vagus nerve and how high vagal tone lowers inflammation, improves resiliency, increases adaptability, and support homeostasis and controls your mood, your emotions, and so on. But you might have never looked at yoga directly as a practice for toning your vagus nerve and a practice of training your body to affect your mind and so you can remove some of the weight from your own limiting beliefs and repetitive patterns in life. If you haven't listened to any of the previous nervous system episode, you can still jump in today's episode and just try it out. But if you get lost in the conversation, go ahead and retrace your steps a little bit before with some other episodes. For today's episode and this particular chat about the nervous system and yoga, I sat down with Eddie Stern. Eddie is a yoga teacher, author, and researcher based in New York City. He is involved in evidence-based research in the healing capacities of yoga, recently completing a master's in science of yoga research at the Vivekananda Yoga University. He has published several scientific papers and books, including one bestseller called One Simple Thing, A New Look at the Science of Yoga and How It Could Change Your Life. And today, this is what we are talking about particularly. He is also the co-author of The Breathing App. Eddie has been practicing yoga since 1987 and has spent the past 35 years traveling yearly from New York to study yoga, philosophy, rituals, and Sanskrit with his teacher in India, including 19 years of studying in Mysore. If today's episode inspires you in any way, share it and help someone else on their journey of understanding their nervous system and nurturing themselves and caring for themselves with yoga as a tool. I always love to read your takeaways on the episode, so take a screenshot of you listening to the episode and share something you've learned on IG, making sure to tag at on and off your mat podcast or me personally at erica.belanger. I'll see them and I'll be happy to reshare you. Before we get to today's episode with Eddie, I have one more reminder regarding Recharge, Reconnect, and Reset, the retreat that is coming up this April. It's really, really soon. This retreat is like getting three months of coaching with me packed in seven days. You'll learn all my favorite mind, body, spirit, and nervous system and self-care practices so you can drop the hustle, lifestyle, melt your stress and anxiety away, and transform your life from the inside out. If you're a sensitive soul or you're a yogi and you're ready to put yourself first a little bit, cater to your needs without guilt, maybe for once, and learn how you can really return to your life feeling rejuvenated and also equipped to make it last, this retreat is going to be life-changing for you. 
If you're feeling called and you've been thinking about it, it's time to make your move because it's going to be too late really soon. And I simply cannot wait for you to embark on this journey. All right, let's get to today's episode with Eddie. Hi, Eddie. How are you? I am so well. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. For our listeners that don't know you very well, can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself, your yoga journey, whatever you feel like you'd like to share in this moment? Sure. I'm from New York City. I started practicing yoga in 1986, went to India in 1988 to begin to dedicate myself to learning how to practice and how to be a teacher. And since then, that's basically all I've been doing, practicing yoga, teaching yoga, studying yoga. I continue to go to India basically every year. I have teachers from different disciplines, from learning Sanskrit, I have translation work to chanting and ritual, as well as yoga, yoga therapy and philosophy and other types of things too. I run a Hindu temple in New York City called the Broom Street Ganesha Temple. I teach yoga out from the temple a few days a week. I teach some online programming as well as leading teacher training programs in pranayama and in yoga through my platform, Yoga Education Collective. I have a couple of apps that I've made. One is minute-long practices for an entire year called Yoga 365. I have an app called The Breathing App, which guides the user in very slow-paced breathing, which is a free app. And my latest app is called The Breathing App for Diabetes, which is a specific breathing program to help people who have diabetes manage their daily stress and anxiety levels that comes from dealing with a lifelong disease. And of course, for people who are pre-diabetic or have reversible type 2 diabetes, then we serve as also adjunctive treatment for their journey towards greater health as well. So that's sort of a little bit of an overview of some of the stuff that I do. Yeah, that's good, I guess, for now. Your plate is pretty full. And I do scientific research as well. I collaborate with universities and scientists to study some of the different effects of yoga. I have a study right now in progress on non-operable lower back pain and yoga mm. with a spinal surgeon at NYU in New York City and a orthopedic surgeon at John Hopkins and a couple of other research projects going as well. So Amazing. Wow. You wrote the book, One Simple Thing, and after reading it, I wanted to reach out and have this chat with you because, one, I thought it was a very easy read when you already have you know, some basic knowledge of the practices, and I thought it was very applicable and useful, and there was some big aha moments for me, although I felt like I had most of the knowledge already. There was new little things that I understood from a different perspective or put together in a different way. So that's why I wanted us to talk about this. And right in the beginning of one of the chapter, I think the chapter on the nervous system itself, you say the nervous system is at the heart of why yoga works. And when I read that, I was like, oh, okay, we do need to talk about this from this perspective, because we've talked about the nervous system from the scientific perspective, from, you know, the branches and polyvagal theory. And we've talked about yoga, but we haven't talked about necessarily directly how it correlates together. Although we'll talk about using the breath to affect this, but I found that what you brought was a lot more complete. And I thought that was super fascinating. So I'm excited that we are diving into this together. Can you start by telling us what's the perspective on the nervous system from the yogic perspective, like from that point of view? Sure. First of all, thanks for reading my book. And also thank you for liking it. 
And the thing that you mentioned about you had a basis in a lot of the information already is 100% true for most yoga practitioners is really not a lot new to be said about yoga at all. It's all been said, which is why it's lasted for such a long time. It's right there in the yoga text. We can all read it, study it, learn it, memorize it, and practice it. And the thing which is so nice about the knowledge of yoga in these texts and the way that it's been passed down from guru to shishya or teacher to student over thousands of years is how democratic it is in its application. Often you hear people talk about yoga practice, practicing yoga, and yoga is something you practice, but there's another word which is perhaps a little bit more applicable when we talk about yoga, and that's the word praxis, which is an X rather than a CT. So rather than a practice, it's a praxis. And a praxis means that there is a philosophical basis, a philosophical viewpoint on reality or on the self or on consciousness that you are then acting upon in particular ways, meaning you're doing certain actions in your life which are in alignment with the philosophy and the merging of those two of bringing philosophy into action is called praxis. And so it's a little bit different than simply doing practice because a practice could be not fully in alignment with the philosophy. And we see a lot of that in the yoga world and in the meditation world and in everything where there are a lot of people doing asanas and a lot of people doing pranayamas, now breath work and all of that. But we also see that not all of it seems to be in alignment with the higher principles of yoga or even the deepest impulses that drive someone to do yoga as well. So when we look at yoga, not as a practice, not as something you do, but as something that you are trying to live and actualize because you have a philosophical basis, means that your life will change. It means that through doing that, you will transform because you're trying to live a philosophy. You're not trying to do an undertaking. You're not trying to do a thing, learn a thing, get better at doing a thing. You're trying to live in accordance. And everything has this like line through it. It's all connected now and intertwined instead of being this little thing here and this little thing there. They all come together for a bigger purpose. It all becomes one thing. And that is called integration when everything all becomes one thing. So I feel the uniqueness of the yoga tradition from India, from the Indic knowledge systems, it's a truly unique thing. And we need as yoga practitioners or praxis isheners to really keep thinking about this like all the time, you know, every day, and include this in our approach to teaching, as well as in our approach to dialoguing about what it is that we're doing. So, you know, the book came about basically because of research I started doing with scientists on yoga. And I remember very distinctly when I had this sort of question that arose and an answer that I felt arose at the same time as my question. And I was in Beaufort, South Carolina, doing a training for a district, a public school district. There were 10 schools involved in the training. And I was going around the country with a couple of people I was working with. We had a small company where we were teaching health and wellness practices based on yoga and meditation to the teachers in school districts so they could teach five and 10 minute long practices to their students. In the yoga and school movement, there was a lot of emphasis at that time, and this is in the mid-2000s, on training yoga teachers to go into public schools and other types of educational institutions and teaching the students there. But the problem with that was that um, the yoga teachers who were going in, they 
didn't know how to deal with small children. They didn't have any training in, you know, philosophy of teaching, teaching pedagogy. They hadn't attended teacher's college. They just knew how to tell people to do stuff. There are language problems too, you know, saying namaste mm -hmm. or using Sanskrit, all this stuff. So what we thought would be a good idea was teach the people who already know how to teach children, how to teach things that are going to help them stay on task. So that's what we started doing. Now, I had just completed a study with a doctor named Marshall Higgins on heart health. And basically, the study was to see if a very, very modified Ashtanga yoga practice, and we're talking super modified, would help pre-hypertensive conditions in African-Americans. And it was a study took about two years to complete from start to finish. And at the end of it, we found that indeed the yoga protocol that we were teaching them had a fairly profound effect on blood pressure levels, especially sleeping blood pressure. So then Dr. Hagens and I did another study. And this other study was on high school students. And we wanted to see if through the course of a year, about 40 yoga classes in comparison to 40 gym classes, would that have any effect on the educational outcomes of the students? And what we saw was a 2.7% higher grade point average in hmm. the randomized students who had yoga over traditional PE. Now, the thing was, the yoga protocol that we used for heart disease and the yoga protocol we used for time on task and educational gains was not all that different. They were pretty similar, but we had positive results on both of them. And I started thinking, you know, how is it that you can do the same thing for two very different groups of people and still have the same positive outcomes that, you know, you're hoping to find, of course. Yeah. Where does it connect? And so I asked that question. We were in the only vegan restaurant in Buford, Buford, and we were with a researcher who was there. And I said, you know, I wonder how it is that the same yoga practices are going to affect these positive outcomes in two very different ways. And I said, the only thing that I can think of, and it was spontaneous at that point, was that we're addressing the functions of the nervous system and the nervous system are going to rule basically what's happening not only within our body with our internal organs, such as cardiovascular health, but also our ability to have time on task, cognitive functions through the prefrontal cortex, as well as how we perceive the events of the world around us and ourselves in response to those events, which is going to determine to a degree stress levels and whether or not responding or managing stress in a way which is uh, commensurate with what we're actually experiencing. So I said, I think what happens is that yoga helps to support homeostasis. And homeostasis is the innate ability of our body to maintain balance. It literally means change, a balance within change or equilibrium within change is what homeostasis means. And when we have a lot of stress, like in school, or when we have a lot of stress that drives up our blood pressure, or when we have problems sleeping, or if we have a digestive problem, or if our glucose levels are going too high, or whatever it might be, which is going wrong somehow, a dysfunction somewhere in the organ system, or circadian rhythm, or any other physiological system, the balance of that and the ability to return to balance is going to be ruled over through homeostasis. And so if we do not support homeostasis, things can continue to go out of balance. But if we support homeostasis by doing some of the things that yoga recommends, stretching and strengthening your body, breathing slowly, doing some meditation, getting enough sleep, eating at the right times, et cetera, et cetera. I don't need to go through the whole list, but that's enough of a list for now. If we do just a little bit of those basic things, we're supporting 
homeostasis. Now, because homeostasis and the communication between our vast cellular body is way, way more intelligent than we are with our tiny little limited, you know, minds and intellects, it knows what's out of balance. So we don't have to say to the brainstem, hey, you know, I'm going to stretch, strengthen, sleep, eat well, breathe slowly and be nice to people. But now I want you to go, you know, normalize my blood pressure. We don't have to say that to the brainstem. The brainstem gets the support that it needs through proper living. And then it goes, oh, your cardiovascular function or my cardiovascular function here that I'm overseeing, it's not normalized. I'm just going to modulate it now. Or my digestion down here, you know, it's been all funky because of the bad food and the high amounts of stress, but now the stress is reduced and the foods are better. Now I have the room, the breathing room to help normalize digestive processes and make things flow again. And so homeostatic function knows what to do. It knows where something is going wrong, but it can only fix it if we give it support. If we don't give it mm -hmm. support, it's not going to fix it. So basically what yoga is, is it gives support to the innate intelligence of the body to flow with nature. So if we live in tune with nature, if we live in tune with balance, then all of our communication systems inwardly are going to be in flow as well. And there will be equilibrium, there will be balance, there will be health, there'll be happiness, there will be, you know, all these wonderful things. So all we have to do is a few little lifestyle changes. And we are supporting the intelligence of our body and giving it the room and permission to do what it needs to do. Otherwise, it's not happy with us and it will allow things to go spinning out of control and they'll just continue to spin. And no amount of you know pharmaceuticals are going to fix it if we don't do something to support it as well. So that's how the book kind of came about. Yeah, I love that. I think like when we're not listening and it needs to spiral out, that brings me to like the communication that yoga allows us to have with our nervous system in the sense of it teaches us to listen better just on that simple level of like hearing and receiving what the body and its innate intelligence is trying to tell us. It's trying to tell us what to do to help it support and, you know, find homeostasis. But we often don't listen for many reasons, but one's because we're so distracted or, you know, our senses are overloaded. There's other things in our life that yoga can support us on that even before all of this can happen. Would you agree? Precisely. And I think the idea of listening that you mentioned is the key thing. Yoga is a listening practice. And the first thing we do is we try to listen to the instructions of our teacher, whoever or wherever they might be, and then make our body or our breath or our mind conform to the things that they're suggesting we try to do. Now, if we are able to do them, not able to do them, if they're comfortable or not comfortable, we're also often instructed to notice what we're feeling. To notice what we're feeling is a listening with the body. And the idea of moving our limbs through space in a particular way and being aware of where our limbs are in space in relation to the world around us is called spatial awareness, and it is a function of proprioception. And proprioception is where the nerves that are attached in the joints of the body are sending messages back to the brain saying, this is where your body is in space in relation to itself and to the things around you. So as we move our body in space into different types of asanas, different types of positions, and we, you know, we're not knocking into the people around us, etc., <laughs> tunes us into the first stage of listening, which is the listening to your body through feeling, through sensation. And then as we listen to our breath, which means we feel the sensation of the breath, we feel how our body changes when we breathe, which could be as simple as putting your hands on your belly, feeling your belly rise when you inhale, feel your belly fall as you exhale. This is noticing how your body changes in relation to breath. So this is the sensing of the breath, 
that can tune you into your heart rate and to other internal sounds and sensations that you might be feeling. How do my lungs feel? How do my intestines feel? You know, are my kidneys overtaxed? Do I have too much activity in my brain? You can feel all these things and that's called interoception. And so the interoceptive sense is our ability to sense and feel and listen to what's happening inwardly. And then the extraoceptive sense is where we're perceiving properly our relation with the world and people around us and the events that are occurring. So proprioception, where our body is in space, interoception, what I'm feeling inside of me, extraoception, how I'm perceiving and cognizing my relation and interaction with objects of the world, including other people, not calling them objects in a bad sense, but everything in manifestation, according to yoga as an object. So fine. So those are three basic principles. And then there's the other idea of neuroception, which is a word coined by Stephen Porges, that is the perception of what's happening in your nervous system. Am I calm? Am I agitated? Are things communicating? Am I in a state of fear? Am I state of receptivity? To notice those types of things of the functions of the nervous system is also something that you tune into through all of the other types of perceptions occurring at the same time as well. So when you have this idea in yoga, pratyahara, which is inward movement of the senses, the inward movement of the senses is a type of perception. It's an inward perception. And it's one of the things which is going to sort of fuel or balance or stabilize all of the other perceptions that we might have as well. The extraoception, proprioception, neuroception, and interoception, and there are other exceptions as well, all get fueled by this type of inward awareness of listening. And the last thing I'll say about this, you've probably heard the word rishi before. A rishi is a sage or a seer. The word rishi means someone who has seen reality and then drawn that scene of reality into their memory and then verbalized it or vocalized it and passed it on as a teaching. And that's how we receive the teachings of the Vedas. But the rishis, they didn't see the teachings in their meditations. They heard the teachings in the form of mantras. So the deepest, deepest, deepest levels of meditation that the rishis who brought forth all this yoga knowledge, they heard these things. And then from hearing, transported it to memory, to word, to instruction. So the rishis were the original hearers of sacred knowledge. And so their teachings teach us and give us ideas about how to listen and how to listen without our ears, where we always think of listening occurring, but listening without the ears. What does that feel like to listen Mm -hmm. with your full awareness? Absolutely. And then that brings us to... Magically, the next thing I wanted to talk about, when we listen without our ears, when we become more adept to those other versions of our perceptions, then we can connect to our prana more. And you say in the book, prana is the main driver of all processes that happens within the nervous system. So if we can become aware of our energy, our bodies in these kind of ways, then we have an extra set of information and an extra set of tools that come from that to also support homeostasis. Would you tell us a little bit about prana and the values? Because I think our listeners knows about the value, but I hadn't seen it directly linked to the nervous system the way you did it in the book. So can you kind of connect those two dots for us? Sure. We have the word prana. It comes from pra and ana, and it means that which causes all things to move. So all things that move in the universe are said to move because of the action of prana. Prana is bioelectric force, bioelectric energy. In the human body, 
prana ties to the jiva, which is the individual soul, and then life begins. And we don't know at what point, but basically the individual soul ties with prana, and then we begin spinning on the wheels of karma, and then all sorts of stuff happens. So <laughs> now prana, there's an overarching prana, which is just the cosmic force of life potential, of energy potential, of action potential that exists in the universe. And then in the human body, prana is going to break up into some different activities. It's going to have a inward coming activity where it can absorb nourishment that comes in. We'll have an outward going activity where it removes the waste or that which is not able to be used for that nourishment. It will distribute that nourishment to every part of our being, physical and subtle. And it has an upward type of an activity, which happens at the time of death. And it has a assimilative capacity as well to absorb and digest information or food or breath or any substance. So you have five basic activities of the pranas in the body. It manages incoming information, which could be food, breath, or experiences. Mm -hmm. Sensory. Yeah. Then it has a outgoing activity, which is whatever we don't need to use is going to leave. So that could mean an exhalation. It could mean waste of food and drink, or it could mean I don't need to hold this experience in my memory banks. I can let go of it. I don't need any retentiveness. It can go. Then we have the assimilative where incoming nourishment, the part we need, will be absorbed and digested. And again, that can be food, it can be breath, or it can be an experience. Well, first we have the spreading out activity of prana. Let's pretend we're talking about breath. Breath comes in. Prana is managing the inflow of breath. And then it needs to get assimilated, which is it'll come to the lungs. And then red blood cells will pass through the lungs and pick up the oxygen and then carry it to every cell of the body, every tissue of the body. That's the assimilative part of it. It could be food assimilation. It could be breath assimilation. It could be an experience. I'm assimilating this experience. I'm digesting it. It's not causing me any upset. And then whatever's left over gets removed. So at the time of death, Udanavayu brings the jiva out from the body. Udanavayu is also responsible for moving Kundalini Shakti into the Shashumna Nadi. And um, it's also responsible for upward moving things like coughing or hiccuping or sneezing. So these are the five pranas in the body. And basically what they do is they oversee operations. And incoming breath, for example, and inhalation, this is the overseeing of the operation of breath coming in, the overseeing of the operation of food coming in. Now, we already know that in the brainstem, all of our life functions are being organized by the functions of the brainstem, monitored, overseen, ruled. So what are the things that the brainstem does? The brainstem is responsible for respiration, controlling it through brain signaling. It is responsible for heart rate, for blood pressure, for digestion, for sexual reproduction, for sleep, for body temperature, and for a host of other things. So these are operations of the brainstem. And the yogis have assigned those operations without knowing terminology like brainstem, because no one said that 2,500 years ago. They assign these operations to properties called pranas. And so when we hear the word prana or the word apana, we're talking about the intelligent organizing capacity of information or of operations that are occurring in a particular way. We're not talking about this thing called prana, this thing called apana, you know, just our inhale or just our exhale. No, it's the entire operation of why that thing needs to occur and how that thing occurring fits into a larger overall picture 
of existence. So that's all they're doing. What we do is we look at things and we separate them only for the sake of investigation, not because they're discrete individual things that exist separate from anything else. And this largely what you find in the Sankhya Darshana, which the Yoga Darshana is based on, that you examine all of the things that make up the manifestation, not because they're separate from each other, but because you can investigate and understand how then they are supporting the operation of the whole and how from looking at all the disequilibrium that we see everywhere in our breath and our digestion, in the world around us, in wars and emotional problems and communication dysfunctions and all of these types of things, how can we move towards an equilibrium? How can we balance all these things so that we can move towards an equilibrium? You know, if not in the entire world, at least in my world of this existence, how can I move this towards an equilibrium? And all of the different things that are counted in Sankhya, from cosmic intelligence to cosmic identity, to the three gunas, to the aspects of the mind to the organs of knowledge and the organs of action and the five elements and the potentials of the elements. You examine all of these things so you can trace them back towards equilibrium and meditate on them until you move back towards an equilibrium state. And what did we say homeostasis was? Homeostasis is equilibrium within change. So the first thing that occurs is we start to understand how can I move towards equilibrium in my nervous system through simple practices that I'm doing in a disciplined way? And when I can understand that you don't just come into balance and stay there forever, that balance is a work in progress, you are constantly in a balancing act, then you learn how to live within the balancing act, which is the entire creation. Because everything in nature changes all the time, and we need to be able to change in concert and in harmony with it, which is largely what Ayurveda is based on, living in harmony with the cycles of nature. And so yoga is doing it within your own body-mind-spirit complex, learning where equilibrium is. And the nervous system is the physical mechanism, the signaling mechanism, which is the linkage between this physical organization of our body with the physical organization of the world that we are part of and that we think that we live in and connects it to the deeper sense of equilibrium that is more subtle than manifestation and exists before anything took form at all. And so that's the linking point. And if we are not able to manage our nervous system, we definitely can't meditate. You know, we definitely cannot go to transcendent states of awareness because our nervous system is going to prevent it. So it's a gateway. And it is the actual mechanism that almost all of the basic yoga practices are going to address. Yama, Niyama, Asana, Pranayama, Pratyahara, Dharana, Dhyana, and Samadhi all are going to be supporting um, these aspects of equilibrium. Now, Physical equilibrium, which is the first stage, is going to come from the basic practices that you find throughout yoga, which are asanas, doing something with your body, stabilize it. Pranayama, do something to stabilize your breath. Food, eat clean food at the right times that you can digest. That's very important. Next, sleep. You have to sleep at the right times and the right amount for you. And last, sexual activity, to not lose and waste energy through excessive or indiscreet sexual activity. Sex is not bad. It's not something to be avoided, but it's something that shouldn't be done indiscriminately um, anytime, anywhere, in any place. Just like you don't want to eat food 
anytime, anywhere, any place that you can't digest or, you know, hang out with the wrong people or sleep at indiscriminate times. Because these are all life functions. These are all things that either brought us into life or where we create more life or that maintain our life. And these are the things that you see the yogis doing. You see brahmacharya, pranayama, asana, you know, the sleep practices and the dietary practices. And if you look at Bhagavad Gita, one of the great texts on yoga and on Dharma, Krishna says in chapter six, I believe it is, Yukta Hara Aviharasya, Yukta Chestasya Karmasu, Yukta Swapna Avabodasya, Yogo Bhavati. For that person who is Yukta, is controlled in, manages their food, Yukta Hara Avihara, enjoyments in life. How much you're working? How much you're sleeping? How much you stay awake? Yogo bhavati dukaha. For that person who manages those things, yoga is the remover of sorrow. But if you don't manage those things, yoga will not be the remover of sorrow. In fact, it might create more suffering because it won't work. And so Krishna says like super clear, Yoga is only going to work for you if you manage your lifestyle in the proper way. And if you don't manage your lifestyle, yoga is not going to do much for you. It might even just create more suffering. This is like a super key message of, you know, eating clean food and, you know, going to sleep at the same time and blah, blah, blah. These aren't like, you know, virtue broadcasting things, you know, it's actual like these are the very specific things whereby yoga actually works. That's why they're foundational practices. In fact, when I started doing yoga uh, in 1986, the first thing that I was told to do by the guy who was teaching me yoga was to become a vegetarian because I was eating terrible food and I was smoking two packs of cigarettes a day and I was living on McDonald's and pitchers of beer. And he said, the first thing you got to do is become a vegetarian vegetarian and clean up your lifestyle. You know, he didn't say stand on your head or do austral breathing or anything like that. So very interesting stuff. Yeah. And those are also the basis of the nervous system, like the most simplest way that you support your nervous system. You know, like you don't have to know all the somatic practices or nervous system regulation practices. Like you start with food, you start with sleep, you start with these things as well. So I love how, you know, you're bringing in that this is just the base of both of those systems. Exactly. Like you said, each of those things, sleep, food, sexuality, etc., these are all ruled by the brainstem. They're survival functions. But this is how we know that those basic practices are going to give us a degree of mastery over our autonomic nervous system. And then yoga will begin to work. Yeah. Oh, so we've talked about that lifestyle, life function, the prana, the values, the eight limbs. One more thing I want, I would like for us to cover that might be more obvious for people, but I just want to sprinkle it in the end here before we wrap it up. And it's the correlation between the nadis and the Western version of the nervous system. Can you tell us a little bit about? that and then we'll wrap it up. Sure. So a nadi means a flute, a tube or a channel. And we have flutes, tubes and channels in our physical body in the form of arteries and veins and capillaries. We have the lymphatic drainage ducts and we have the, of course, the nerves of the nervous system, the sympathetic, parasympathetic, peripheral, enteric nervous system, phrenic nerve, all of these different nervous systems. So these are all nadis of the physical body. And then we have nadis of the subtle body. The nadis of the subtle body are called prana nadis. And they are the things that carry our bioelectric energy, our vitality, and they're invisible to the eye. 
They are similar to the meridians that you find in Chinese medicine, but they also have probably their own little distinctions as well. And there has been some supposition through Dr. Neil Thies and his team who discovered a new organ of the body called the interstitium, that the interstitium, which is a body-wide organ, might be one of the communication messengers that makes the meridians work and perhaps the prananadis work as well. So the prananadis are a supposition basically of energy flows based on meditative experience and revelation that the yogis brought forth into the world. There is a lot of consistency with how these nadis have been mapped out by different teachers, different gurus, different sages over the centuries, which gives us an idea that there probably is some kind of truth to them because there is a consistency regardless of where people are having an experience of them. However, they are invisible. Now, something to be invisible doesn't make it less real. For example, our mind is invisible. You can't cut open our head and look into our brain and see any thoughts. Yeah, like the words are floating in there in actuality. <laughs> you can't cut open a human body and find a mind. You can't find love. You can't find compassion. You can't find generosity or forgiveness. These are all things that are invisible, but we know that they're real because we act on them and we feel them and we do them and we express them. And so we have to not really take it for granted, but we have to take it on faith that there are these pathways of life force moving in us, which might be so subtle that they're invisible. Just like we have a life force moving through us, which is the experience of being alive, which also is invisible. We can't find it even if we dissect ourselves. So prananadis exist on this level. And when we look at the five body system and we have a physical layer, we have a breath layer, we have a mental layer, we have an intellect layer, and we have a bliss layer. The prananadis are existing in the breath layer. And so the breath layer is invisible to the eye, and it's an intermediary level between the physical and the mental. It is the link. So that's mm -hmm. why we know that when our breath is calm and slow and quiet, our mind is calm and slow and quiet, and our body is relaxed. When our breath is agitated, fast, or harsh, our thinking becomes fast, agitated, aggressive, or the opposite or depressive, and then our body reflects that same thing. So what's happening in the body can happen in the mind. What happens in the mind can happen in the body. And the prananadis are the things that are linking what's happening in the mind to expression in the body and the expression of the body to reflect in a state of mind or a state of consciousness. So it's sort of like an intermediary way station, which we are, you know, assuming its existence based on investigation and examination. What comes up for me in this is that we go back to this communication, right, between our perception, our mind, and then our experience of the world. Like there's also those pieces coming in again from the nervous system into the nadis, which I don't know necessarily that people might have put that together before. Like they might know that if, you know, I use Ida or Pingala that can affect Like, I think people know this on a more base level, but I'm glad that we're talking about it from this bigger bird eye view, because then you can see a bit more the correlation. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So, and that's the thing, you know, we can look at the studies done on right nostril breathing and left nostril breathing and see that through extended periods of right nostril breathing, you can increase your cognitive functions. And those are being processed in the 
cortex areas of the brain. Through extended periods of left nostril breathing, you can begin to expand your spatial awareness and what we could call intuitive capacities, you know, your sensing capacities, feeling capacities, those will increase. Why is it that when you breathe through your right nostril, you're increasing cognitive abilities, but when you're breathing through the left nostril, according to, you know, quite well accepted science, you're increasing information flows near the back part of the brain. We're not talking right and left hemispheres. We're talking front and back of the brain. And also that right nostril breathing is going to increase metabolism and left nostril breathing is going to slow metabolism. And so somehow the yogis tuned into this idea of sun and moon or hot and cold, cognitive and incensing, and assign those to both the right and the left nostril. So the right nostril is the Surya Nadi, which is the sun channel. And it's related to things that are active, that are engaged in cognitive reasoning, logical, rational, etc. And that the left nostril, which is cooling and related to the feminine, intuitive, emotional, sensing, you know, spatial types of things are in that channel as well. So when they were looking at nadis, they weren't just saying, oh, here's some invisible system, you know, is carrying out these operating faculties. They were also saying, well, they're very specific locations as well. And we've noticed that through this right nostril, which we're assigning to the heating energy or, you know, this logical entities being expressed through the right nostril. How did they know that? They paid attention. They practiced stuff. They experimented. They listened. And then they discovered these invisible connections that were causative in different ways. And we can see a relation with the sympathetic and parasympathetic branch of our autonomic nervous system. That's exactly it. That, you know, our sympathetic nervous system is going to be instigated or stimulated through right nostril breathing. And the parasympathetic is going to be supported through left nostril breathing. And this is why alternate nostril breathing is so nice. It's not that it is balancing right and left hemisphere functions so much. It balances communication between the two hemispheres of the brain. There's not really this correlational thing. And this is something also that changed over the years because there were studies that were done by Kalsa and other people a long time ago that showed like there was a bilateral connection between the right hemisphere of the brain and the left side of the body, left hemisphere and the right side of the body. There was the assumption that the nostrils were doing the same with the brain. And I even wrote about that in the One Simple Thing book. But now we know that to not be true, that actually... It supports communication between the two hemispheres, but the real stimulation is front and back of the brain. However, the way that people used to speak about right and left hemisphere are not all that different than how we speak about front and back of the brain. Yeah, we just had the wrong word. Like the concepts are the same and we understood kind of the same thing, but we labeled it wrong, I feel. Exactly. Or there was an assumption and then now new assumptions are being made. So you just have to shift and then hopefully correct in a future edition any problems that are in my book about science. <laughs> now science works. Yeah. Lovely. Anything you want to add before we finish? If there's like one thing that maybe you want to make sure it comes through or I should have asked. You know, over a decade, I haven't gotten tired of talking about this stuff, and I'm always learning something new and always adding in some more information. Right now, I'm in the process of writing a book with a friend of mine named Dr. Abba Rajbandari, and her lab at Mount Sinai studies the vagus nerve. So we're writing a book on the vagus nerve together. When is that coming out? Two years from now. Okay. I have another book coming out, not two years from now, but at the end of this month, and it's called Healing Through Breathing. 
and it's an Audible original. So it's only available as an audiobook on Audible. Amazing. That'll be out, I believe, at the end of this month or early February. So that will be out for people when the episode is out. So you guys can go check it out. Oh, well, there you go. So nothing else to add, really. And uh, I might have forgotten some things or I might have said some things wrong. But again, a lot of people are like not interested in science and yoga at all. Like they could care less about the nervous system and they don't want to hear about mm. sympathetic or whatever. And, and that's absolutely fine, too. I just happen to have a mind which is now interested in those things. I didn't used to be, but now I'm fascinated by them. Yeah, me too. It doesn't do anything, you know, even all that information and all that knowledge, which is readily available for everyone. Anything I've said, for the most part, you can find on the internet. And I've had some little insights, which maybe I think might have been original that I put into my book. You know, for the most part, it's just for the sake of conversation. At the end of the day, you know, you have to live in accordance with the principles that you hold high according to yoga and live a life in accordance with that. And so that comes back to praxis, what we spoke about earlier, why praxis is so important. And if this type of a conversation enhances your connection with the practices you're doing, then that's awesome. And then that's great. And if you're not that kind of a person, then there are going to be other things that are going to enhance your interaction with your spiritual practices. I will put all your info in the show notes for the meantime. Where can people go if they want to find you? They want to work with you in some way? Where's the best place to go? And what do you have going on? You mentioned the book already. Is there other ways that people can work with you if they want to? I teach in person and online at eddystern.com. And I have a training platform called Yoga Education Collective with one of my first yoga teachers, Robert Moses, and our friend Harsh Barden from Mumbai. We do pranayama trainings and yoga teacher trainings, and we do pranayama intensives and other types of classes that are helping to preserve and transmit and dialogue about classical yoga practices and traditions. So that's yogaeducationcollective.com. And then my website is eddystern.com. And I'm not super active on Instagram, but that's Eddie Stern also. So but probably the best places. The website. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you so much for your time today. It was a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for joining us today. Last call for Recharge, Reconnect and Reset. The retreat is coming up this April. So check ericabalanja.com slash retreat or DM me for more details about this. You'll find the show notes for this episode at ericabelange.com slash 210. And before you go, I just want to say a last thank you to the growing team behind this podcast for their support in making this possible. And this includes all our premium members. Once again, thank you for listening. I'll see you next Monday.